This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. The most memorable interviews and listener calls from the week that was on Fight Back with Libby Snymer. Welcome to the best of Fight Back with Jane Brown. Good afternoon. Welcome to the Saturday edition of the Best of Fight Back from the week that was. The week began with new information, putting numbers to some horrifying facts we learned from the military's report on long-term care in Ontario during the first wave of COVID-19. A published report reveals at Downsview Long-Term Care Centre, one in four residents succumbed to the virus and another 26 died from dehydration. At Hawthorne Place Care Center, 51 residents died of COVID-19 in the 269-bed facility, and the military report says it suspected those fatalities pale in comparison to deaths from other causes. Meantime, it was early this month, Andrea Horvath, leader of the opposition New Democrats, wrote to the Ontario Provincial Police, asking investigators to review whether the Long-Term Care Commission's findings constitute a case for criminal charges. On a positive note, restrictions have been eased in some Ontario nursing homes that meet a threshold for COVID-19 vaccination rates. Libby Snymer was joined by the Zoomer squad on Monday to talk about the new disturbing information related to first wave deaths. Here are Bill Van Gorder, Interim Chief Policy Officer at CARP, David Kravitz, Chief Membership Officer at CARP and Vice President at Zoomer Media, and Peter Mugridge, Senior Editor at Zoomer Magazine. Nothing surprising. It, it's something we've all uh... You know, we, we saw the military come in and that terrible report that they released. Um, it was inevitable that a number of deaths were going to be a result not of COVID, but of neglect. And uh, you can't get any more neglectful than malnutrition or dehydration. Those are very simple. Um, you know, uh, th- those are very simple to overcome. You just need to be fed and cleaned and... Um, given a glass of water or, or you know, and, and the inability of the homes to provide it is criminal. I don't know if, if the homes, like the individuals, are, are going to be charged criminally, but the homes themselves, it's, it's a criminal uh, investigation that will have to go on and find out who's responsible. David, uh, do you think that this is going to advance anything in terms of the response? I don't see uh, how they can do anything now. It's retroactive. I agree with Peter. I, I would point out, by the way, that the Morocco report did refer uh, indirectly to this. It didn't have this, these statistics, but it talked about that when the decision was made to not allow uh, loved ones into the home, there was a big drop-off in the quality of care because some of these people, the loved ones, had provided care or at least been able to watch how their their, uh, you know, relatives inside the home were doing, and there was he was quite critical of that. Um, if you don't have any staff and you're in the middle of this emergency and people are dying for other reasons and you don't have the resources, um, I think your liability at minimum extends to, 
you know, waving the flag and getting some help in there. So I think that there's some culpability there. I, whether they can prove this, you know, criminally in a court, I don't know. But it's 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 horrifying. It's just it's just part of the neglect and the slow response uh, that characterized the whole thing. Uh, Bill, uh, we saw even uh, the Minister of Long-Term Care said, let's get the military in there within 24 to 48 hours. It didn't happen that fast. No, it didn't. You'll recall that we talked about this when it was uh, when it was happening, and it actually took weeks before the uh, extra help was called in. The homes themselves said, look, we're in trouble. Uh, families aren't coming in any longer. We're having trouble getting enough staff to look after people. Please help. And it took weeks for the government to respond. And at the same time, that's when they cut off the inspections. So the government itself wasn't even going into finding out what things were like. So we're a little concerned that uh, uh, that some government people want to put all the responsibility uh, on the homes and on COVID and not admit they were really late responding too. Well, it's interesting, David. Uh, this was in the Globe and Mail. Again, it's from testimony that was not made public. And a response for from a spokesperson for Mer- Merrily Fullerton said, well, it sounds like this is criminal, uh, and that's terrible. But is that but, just a, a passing of the buck? Well, it, it is because it, it completely dances around the fact uh, that it was systemic. I mean, this isn't one rogue, you know, wet law for a case where, you know, you have enough nurses in hospitals and you have enough uh, care workers and one or two rogue people go and do commit a crime and then get arrested and charged and convicted. And it, it doesn't necessarily mean the whole thing. This was a the ministry that never got out of the starting gate on this. And that's been the problem. Yes, there was systemic problems. Yes, there was weakness. Yes, there was years of neglect. They were faced with an emergency that had to result in throw away the rule book and fix the emergency. And they responded bureaucratically. They took their time. They responded slowly. I don't know that it was even malicious. It's just the way the system runs. They were not geared up to look at this as a dire emergency and to respond accordingly and quickly. David Kravitz, Chief Membership Officer at CARP and Vice President at Zoomer Media. Bill Van Gorder, Interim Chief Policy Officer at CARP. And Peter Mugridge, Senior Editor at Zoomer Magazine. Fight Back's Monday Zoomer Squad. You're listening to the best of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. I'm Jane Brown. It's Nursing Week in Canada when we've learned to no one's surprise that the strain of working through the COVID crisis is taking a toll. A pair of surveys for two of the unions representing nurses find that burnout among nurses is very high, and about 40% have considered or are considering leaving the profession. On Monday, Libby was joined by a panel of experts to talk about the concerns and challenges facing registered nurses and registered practical nurses. The conversation began with firsthand knowledge provided by Pam Parks, a registered practical nurse in the emergency ward of a large Durham region hospital. Work has been uh, very uh, exhausting after all these months um, of um, flowing through exhausting, tiring, mentally exhaustion, and physical at the time. 
And how is it to work uh, beside and have very close contact with somebody that is uh, suspected or that you know has COVID? Well, we have to prepare ourselves mentally because um, since the pandemic, um, you have to be ready, under ready, to uh, just uh, be on the alert to uh, say that everyone that are coming in, they may be, because uh, the frustrating part of it is that we don't know. So you have to be um, mentally prepared and ready and have your gear ready just in case so that you are protected, your coworkers are protected, and the patients are protected. For the bigger picture, let's bring in Vicki McKenna, president of the Ontario Nurses Association, Michael Hurley, president of the Ontario Council of Hospital Unions and vice president of QP Ontario, and Charlene Stewart, president of SEIU Healthcare. How big a problem is burnout uh, now that this has been going on for over a year? Well, I mean, Libby, you say the uh, results are really disturbing. And again, we are telling the province and Premier Ford that the alarm bells are ringing very, very loud right now. Burnout was bad pre-COVID, but now some of the results that you see is 93% of those polled in in SEIU surveys said that they are experiencing mental exhaustion. Uh, 93% same thing, physical exhaustion. They're all over 75% experiencing stress, uh, upper and lower body pain, back pain. I mean, that was uh, existing pre-COVID, but now, as you've heard Pam speak about, it is exacerbated. They are literally falling apart. And you'll hear that, that many of them are leaving and talking about not coming back. Some of them have been off sick because of injury or contracting COVID, and they are seriously thinking about whether or not they're returning. Vicki McKenna, what's happening in your union? Oh, I would echo what Charlene just mentioned. We did some work and survey work prior to COVID, um, of course, not anticipating COVID situation, where we were hearing very clearly from nurses that they were they were experiencing a burnout and fatigue and feeling mentally and physically exhausted because of the shortage of nurses that has existed and is, is compounding. Then COVID hits. So we know, and what we're hearing certainly, and the research that's underway right now is demonstrating exactly that, that nurses are at the brink and that there needs to be concerted effort in order to sustain the workforce and support the nurses that are out there at the front lines holding that line right now. Michael, what are you looking for? Well, I mean, a a third of the nurses we polled were not paid when they caught COVID at work. And, and obviously they should be, or when they have to isolate. Most nurses have not, or healthcare workers have not been fully vaccinated against, uh, uh, COVID, uh, even though they're working in hospitals that are overcrowded and, and many people are suffering from, from the variants. That makes them feel vulnerable. They continue to have problems accessing protective equipment. And finally, they're now in their, in their, uh, third wage restraint regime in 15 years and, and they are, seeing their their wages uh, lost uh, to inflation as it starts to take off. So they're feeling uh, unsupported, uh, unvalued, um, and and with respect to, like, there's no mental health support for them. You know, when they stack all of these things together, they feel like they're really on their own, even though they have tried so hard to step up for the people of Ontario during what 
they know is an enormous health crisis for this province. Michael Hurley, president of the Ontario Council of Hospital Unions and vice president of CUPE Ontario. Charlene Stewart, president of SEIU Healthcare. Vicki McKenna, president of the Ontario Nurses Association. And Pam Parks, a registered practical nurse in Durham Region. You're listening to the best of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. I'm Jane Brown. Coming up after the break, stay at home means stay at home. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Good isn't good enough. Make way for the best of Fight Back with Jane Brown on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. Ontario's Premier is doubling down on his ban of outdoor amenities, including tennis, golf, and basketball, a ban that went into effect halfway through last month, with no end in sight before June 2nd. Despite contrary advice from scientists, Doug Ford insists the stay-at-home order needs to include a ban on these outdoor activities so that people don't gather before and after their time on the golf course or tennis court. At the same time, Premier Ford continues to lobby for the Trudeau Liberals in Ottawa to tighten up the borders which looks to many like deflecting, especially since the stats show that workplace spread in COVID hotspots continue to fuel high daily case counts. Prior to the Premier's most recent announcement, Libby discussed the ongoing issue with our Tuesday strategy panel, Karen Stintz, CEO of Variety Village, John Capobianco, Senior Vice President and Senior Partner at Fleischmann Hillard High Road, and Charles Souza, former Liberal Ontario Finance Minister. You know, there's some valid points being made on both sides. There's, in this regard, uh, well, there's three sides, I guess, when you include the municipalities. But if we look at the province versus the feds, it kind of reminds me of those stickers that they were putting on those gas stations. You know, let's deflect and let's make this an issue for something that really is out of control of uh, those concerned. There already is some practices at play that enable us to um, try to limit the degree of spread, but obviously more can be done. And I'm not defending anybody here. Uh, there is some things the feds could do better to close the leisure travel that's happening. And I think the mayor of Brampton said it clearly. It's it's a matter of stopping leisure, stopping if we're in a, a, sh- you know, a lockdown in Ontario, <clears throat> why are we allowing people to travel and why are we not catching them at other places? It's a big issue. Uh, it's being politicized, unfortunately, because everyone's under a lot of stress. But it sounds to me, Libby, they're coming back to normal. It's not uncommon uh, for Doug Ford to attack the federal government and the municipalities, as he did when he first came to power. But we need to do better. John Capobianco, uh, again, with this issue of the outdoor amenities, uh, we have all kinds of physicians and scientists saying these activities are not a problem. And yet it has become a big issue. Uh, is that just a matter of the province having allowed it to get out of control, or is Doug Ford just listening to David Williams too much, and David Williams himself is coming under a lot of criticism for a lot of different things? Libby, the one thing I would say is that, you know, you can't win for trying here, because I assure you that if the Premier came up 
two weeks ago and said that he was going to lock down the province but keep golf courses open and keep certain things, you, were, you, you, would, have, you would have gotten a slew of criticism to say, well, you know, the golfers can go out and have fun and this can have fun. So for him to be able to say, look, we're going to shut this down and we're going to shut this down completely. And, and albeit he did reverse himself on a couple of those issues. But, you know, the fact is the numbers are going down. We're now at the lowest numbers that we've seen in a, in a little while. So we've got to keep this going. But if he did keep those open, he would have been criticized. So the fact that he's closing them now, the public health officials are saying, oh, no, he should have kept them open. Like, that's the kind of stuff that's going on here where you get these competing interests and these competing thoughts, and you can't win for trying no matter if you're the prime minister or if you're the premier of this province or any other province. You're seeing that people are getting fed up with this. They want vaccines. They want to get to some level of normal. The good news is vaccines are being distributed, and, and more and more people are getting um, uh, vaccinated, which is, which is good. And not only for the first shot, we're seeing a lot of the second shots now being distributed as well. Karen, do you agree as shutting outdoor amenities? Did they just have no sense of what kind of an issue it would become? No, I think that um, there's a couple things playing out, right? And and part of it, and I, and I think that the big challenge for Ford right now is that he, he lost his narrative a couple weeks ago. And he's he hasn't been able to regain that narrative. And so what's at play? I think John's right. Like, what's at play is that, oh, so... Privileged people can continue to fly. Privileged people can continue to play golf. Privileged people can continue to play tennis. But, you know, restaurateurs and hair salons and, you know, all those guys are, are, are locked out of, of their jobs. They're not, they're not making any money. So isn't it another case of Ford saying he's looking out for the little guy, but he's really not because he's letting all of these other things happen, meanwhile impacting a segment of society very, very hard. And... There is no question that how these restrictions have played out has had different impacts on different people depending on their socioeconomic status. Karen Stintz, CEO of Variety Village. John Capobianco, Senior Vice President and Senior Partner at Fleischman Hillard High Road. And Charles Souza, former Liberal Ontario Finance Minister. Fight Back's Tuesday Strategy Panel. This is Zuma Radio's Best of Fight Back. I'm Jane Brown. It's especially devastating news for cancer patients and people who need joint replacement and other types of surgery that is considered elective. A report by the Financial Accountability Office of Ontario says it will take three and a half years to clear Ontario's surgery backlog and cost $1.3 billion, about twice what the province has budgeted so far. What's particularly unfortunate is that provincial hospitals had started clearing the backlog that was half this size after the first wave. But then the second and third waves of COVID-19 hit, and it all took a turn for the worse. On Tuesday, Libby was joined by a panel of experts to discuss, starting with Peter Weltman, Ontario's financial accountability officer. So there are two types of backlogs. There's a sur- elective surgery backlog, which the we think is 419,200, and that's our projection until the end of September of 2021. And there are almost two and a half million diagnostic procedures <clears throat> in backlog to that period of time. Let's talk about the 419,200 procedures. Uh, You're saying that's $1.3 billion. That's twice, about twice what the province budgeted for it. But uh, if it's going to be over three and a half years, I guess they have time to put more money into it. 
Well, I think it's fair to say that uh, when the government put its budget out, that was before the third wave hit and before the April 2021 uh, order to uh, postpone elective surgeries. So certainly I think their plan was up until that point. And yes, they, they certainly have time to uh, to reassess should they choose to. So the $1.3 billion, just to be clear, 1.1 of that is for the surgeries and about $241 million is for the diagnostic procedures. These reports are important because it, it gets people to ask the right questions of their MP. You know, get, get your MPP to ask the question, how is this going to be cleared up? How do we know when, you know, isn't, how is the system going to handle it when my elective surgery doesn't become elective anymore? What is the plan? What government is the plan in place to how to manage this backlog, given that we've had capacity constraints in hospitals even before the pandemic? We need to get a better feel for what you're planning to do to give us some comfort that, uh, you know, we'll be able to get looked after. Right now, I'd like to welcome Dr. Shadia Shamala, who is the head of general surgery at Sunnybrook Health Sciences, and Dr. Robert Nam, a professor of surgery at the U of T who specializes in the surgical treatment of urologic cancers. Dr. Ashamala, were you surprised by the numbers in that FAO report? Uh, the short answer is no. I mean, that's, that's exactly what we're seeing um, at all the hospitals across the province is that um, when, you know, it's, it's a combination of what we've stopped uh, or what we've paused uh, secondary to necessity, uh, but also the directive that came from the government to, to stop all uh, non-urgent, non-emergent surgeries and procedures. I, I mean, it's been a year. Um, and and it's waxed and waned. There have been periods where we were able to ramp close back to normal, but there have been periods where we are really only doing the most urgent cases. And, you know, uh, at the end of the day, no surgery is unnecessary. No surgery is done um, uh, that, that isn't very important. And so these, obviously, when we stop something that, that is absolutely required in society, there will be a backlog. And, and those numbers don't surprise me at all. Dr. Nam, you had an editorial in the Globe and Mail today, and you argue that stopping elective surgery is the wrong way to go. Absolutely. You know, the, the blanket directive um, is preventing cancer surgeons from providing care. And I believe that we can continue to conduct cancer surgery that doesn't depend on hospital admissions, that doesn't depend on ICUs, and that way we can chip away at the wait list of cancer surgery and we can do it safely and we can do it without increasing the numbers. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I agree. And, and I think at the, at the end of the day, it's not going to be a nice straight line where we just run a backlog and slowly catch up. These patients are all going to present at different times and what wasn't emergency may become an emergency and, and not just cancer in every aspect of their care. Uh, when you don't operate on someone, you leave them cycling through the healthcare system. And so the entire burden on the healthcare system isn't just their operation. It's the additional tests that are required. It's a whole process. Uh, and so, you know, very, uh, in, in, in very simple terms, it won't just be a backlog. It'll be a massive burden on the healthcare system that'll need to be addressed. Dr. Shadi Ashamala, Head of General Surgery at Sunnybrook Health Sciences Center. Dr. Robert Nam. Professor of Surgery at the University of Toronto, and Peter Weltman, Ontario's Financial Accountability Officer. I'm Jane Brown, and this is Zoomer Radio's Best of Fight Back. Still to come, what you had to say about the week that was and the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week. 
You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Zoomer Radio, pulling no punches with the best of Fight Back with Jane Brown. Fight Back with Libby Snymer brings you comprehensive coverage of the news stories that interest you and your reaction to them on the phones. And now, Fight Back's Knockout Call of the Week. There were a lot of great calls this week, but the winner of the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week comes from Lucy, who phoned about the AstraZeneca COVID vaccine and how frustrating it is to hear that it is a moving target. You read so much about this, and it's like a moving target. You know, first the National Post, you know, I read it that, you know, the risk could be as high as 1 in 26,000, but, you know, it's or 1 in 55,000. You know, then they say, it's, you know, the Nazi says it's the preferred. And then they say, no, 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 we made a mistake. No, let's clarify that. Then they say Health Canada says, well, the risk, you know, you have to watch out for symptoms four to 20 days. Now it's like four to 28 days. Um, and if they had 12 cases in Canada, then three were fatal. That's 30%. And one of those 12, you know, not fatal, but the guy apparently is, you know, has a really, really debilitating stroke. There's a chance that, you know, if I get this, you know, I will die or have a debilitating stroke. I'm not sure if I want it anymore. To reassure Lucy and others like her, we are awaiting a decision by the Ford PCs on how people who got AstraZeneca as their first shot will be able to access a second dose. Many experts agree the risk of developing an extremely rare blood clot with a second shot of AZ is about one in a million, and those who got AZ first should also get it as their second dose. That does it for today's Best to Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. If you'd like to qualify for the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week, phone us noon to one weekdays. Or if you have a comment, email us at fightback at zoomer.ca. Follow us on Twitter at fightbacklibby. And call our Fightback voicemail anytime at 416-367-9636. I'm Jane Brown. Join me again at the same time tomorrow when we'll round up the rest of The Best of Fight Back. The Best of Fight Back is produced by Jane Brown, Justin Eacock, and Zeev Hadi, with technical production by Kelly Robotham. Executive producer, Moses Neimer. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.